This morning, I want to uh, take you to Thessalonica. Now, we've been just uh, finished a series uh, for the past few months looking at Philippians. And the next uh, kind of destination on Paul's missionary journey um, was Thessalonica. So we're going to look just for this week um, at really the birth of the Christian community, the birth of the church in Thessalonica. And we're going to see a little bit of what happened. And crucially, we're going to see how it happened. So just briefly, you don't have to look um, at Acts 17, but um, Paul's missionary journey, so he leaves uh, Philippi, uh, where he's seen the jailer come to faith, he's seen, and this whole family come to faith, he's seen uh, Lydia and her um, household come to faith. And the next place he goes is Thessalonica. And when he gets to Thessalonica, uh, he goes with Silas, and he preaches in the synagogue for three weeks, three Saturdays um, in the synagogue. And actually, remarkably, uh, in a short time, a whole community of people come to faith, come to worship Jesus. So uh, it says that there are uh, Jews, Greeks, and some uh, prominent women who come to faith in this city. And then and this early church, this, this church is basically formed in Thessalonica. And then we're, gonna, we're now going to read from um, 1 Thessalonians, uh, page 1720 in your Bibles. And we're going to see Paul's letter back to this community. And he's left them, and he's now in Athens, and he writes a letter back to them. And we're really going to see, uh, again, more of what happened in Thessalonica, and crucially, how it happened. So I'm going to read now from uh, chapter 1, verse 6. And you, he's talking to the Thessalonians, saying, saying, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Acacia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. For though we'd already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted by the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext of greed. God, God is our witness. For did we seek glory from people, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for this precious gospel that we've been singing about this morning. We just thank you for this good news that we're united with you in Christ. We just want to give you all the glory for our lives, the fact that we're sitting here worshiping you, or we were standing here worshiping you, and now we're here listening to your word. I just pray that as we, we unpack what you did in Thessalonica, we would uh, learn what you want us to do in London. 
and that we would get a new, uh, renewed faith for your, uh, your gospel going out in this city. Amen. Okay. So um, briefly then, what's, what's happened in Thessalonica when Paul went there? Well, we can see that, uh, that really there's been a profound transformation. A new community of Christians have been birthed. You see that in verse 9? First of all, we can see they've come to faith, come to believe. Uh, chapter 1, verse 9. You turn to idols to serve the living and the true God. So they, and they've, they've, they've been saved. They now worship Jesus. Before all the other idols they were worshipping, now they worship Jesus. And now they've also become evangelists. They've been people seeking to tell uh, what God has done in their lives and who he is. It says, verse 8, Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Acacia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. And now they are waiting for the Lord's return. And it says in verse 10, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So you've seen a, a people of God now who've been saved, who've been built up and are now telling others about what God's done and they're waiting for Jesus' return. And actually this, this pattern, this, uh, this model that we see in the lives of the Thessalonians is, uh, is actually our vision for London as a church. We want to take the gospel out to this city. We want to do that individually, sharing, sharing uh, the good news about Jesus with our friends, our families, our colleagues. And we want to do it corporately on Sundays and things like Salt Live, which is a kind of our... Um, evangelistic meetings that we do. We'll tell you more about that another time. Um, and as we do that, as we take the gospel out into the city, we, we hope and pray, and we've already seen this, that some will respond to the gospel. Some will turn from idols, maybe not kind of the stone idols that might, they might have been worshipping in those days, but turning from worshipping sex, money, power, wealth, all the things that, that Londoners would say, this is what will bring you ultimate satisfaction. They're going to turn from those idols and come to worship Jesus. And then as they come to worship Jesus, come to believe and trust in him, we'll build them up, and, uh, and teach them, and then send them out to go and tell, uh, tell in London and tell beyond London um, the story of what God has done and the good news about Jesus and how he's changed their lives. This is our, this is our vision for this city. And, th- and I think about a guy like Warren. Um, he was a guy who was studying in Lambda, uh, acting college, uh, and he was, he was living with a guy called Brandon who was a a guy who came to Grace London. And over time, they discussed and they uh, grappled with, you know, Warren, Warren was coming from an atheist perspective and they grappled with it. And then Warren said, no, I think there is a God. And then came to a conclusion that actually, um, that, this, that Jesus was God and ultimately put his faith and trust in Jesus. And then he was discipled here for a short while. And then we sent him out to, uh, to go and preach the gospel in Wales. He's joined a church there, um, part, uh, kind of partner church of ours, uh, part of the Advanced Network. And he's, and he's, uh, he's actually just, as uh, we heard a few weeks ago, he's actually now starting to train for ministry. Um, so yeah, here's an example, the picture of the kind of transformation that we're seeking. And actually, this is um, what we talk about when we talk about transforming this city as a church. You know, we, we talk about the so, uh, kind of social action, and we talk about political, political influence. Yeah, we want, to, we want those things are good. But actually, the, the, the kind of primary way that we believe this city will be transformed by Grace London is actually uh, the transforming power of the gospel. That one by one, people will come to follow Jesus and their lives will be surrendered to him. He'll be changing their lives and then they'll go out to tell others about that transformation. Actually, this is not just the vision of this church. This is the calling for all Christians. This is what um, Jesus commands his disciples to do in Matthew 28, where he sends them on the Great Commission to go make disciples of all nations. And this is not just a kind of for the corporate body. This is actually for each of us as individuals. 
This command to make disciples is what then gives us the the backdrop, gives us the the reason why the book of Acts is full of the disciples then going and taking the gospel across Asia, across Europe, and churches being planted. That's That's the reason why we see Paul on his mission in Thessalonica in the passage that we're looking at. So this is, this is the, the command, the, the, uh, the calling, the responsibility, um, and the commission for believers. But many of us struggle with this. For many of us, the, the whole topic of evangelism is loaded with guilt. Guilt because we know the vision, but we feel like we failed to live it out. Um, we actually, honestly, if we're honest, most of us rarely do evangelism. Um, for some of us, it feels like there just aren't opportunities in this city that uh, it feels our friends, our families, they're not really open to hear about Jesus. Uh, for some of us, it feels like this city, a secular city like London, faith feels like it's on the margins. So we doubt that, that God is really going to kind of lead Londoners to follow him. And so ultimately, behind that lack of activity um, is actually the fact that we don't really believe in evangelism. We don't really believe that God will use us to make disciples, use us to take the gospel out and to see people's lives transformed. So I think that we, we sit in something of a tension, a kind of, when we read a passage like this, we say, this is fantastic. We hope that lives will be transformed. We, we know that the world needs to know Jesus and he's the answer to their needs. And we have a longing for people to turn their lives over to him. And yet also on the personal level, we feel impotent. We feel a bit like a, a failure. At best, we hope, it, hope that this will happen but it probably won't happen with us. And at worst, we don't think it will happen at all. So why? Why is this? Why the lack of evangelism in our lives? Well, I think actually primarily there are some underlying myths, some kind of false beliefs, some um, almost objections going on in our minds that really um, undermine our confidence in evangelism. And I actually think we're going to tackle three of these myths today, and we're going to see what Paul has to say to each of these myths. So the three myths are, uh, myth one, evangelism is doomed to failure. Myth two, evangelism is immoral. And myth three, evangelism is um, not necessary because I can show Jesus with my life. We're going to deal with each of these myths in turn, and we're going to see how Paul refutes these myths and shows us why they're not true. And as we unpack this passage, my hope is that we would again believe in evangelism, that we believe that it's possible for God to use us to reach this city, to take his gospel out and to see lives transformed. Actually, I I would hope that we would actually see it something for the privilege it is to be involved in helping others connect with God. So I want you to believe that it's possible and actually believe it's the best thing we can do for this city. So let's deal with myth number one. Evangelism is doomed to failure. Evangelism is doomed to failure. So many of us, I think there's kind of a few reasons for this. One of it is that kind of always in the news, there's this kind of drumbeat of declining church attendance, of declining religious faith. Just last week, another uh, annual British social attitude survey came out where 41% of people describe themselves as Christian in this country, and I think it was less than 50% of people describe themselves as religious at all. And every year, we're kind of at a new low in this country, so to speak, uh, for religious faith, or particularly um, faith in Christ. And actually, so for most churches, there's this whole dynamic where they're not really asking the question, how is the gospel going to go out? Really, what they're asking is, how will we as a church survive in this declining culture of religious faith? And so the whole kind of takes you right on the back foot from the beginning. Uh, Secondly, I think uh, culturally, 
and particularly in a city like London, it feels like um, Christianity is out of step with the zeitgeist. Think about uh, ethical opinions. So think about Jacob Rees-Mogg on TV a couple of weeks ago or last week, uh, talking about his um, Catholic faith and what that meant for his belief about same-sex marriage and his belief about abortion. And, you know, the headlines, you know, how could Jacob Rees-Mogg believe in this? And so, you know, we see these headlines, we see just almost weekly basis, how kind of out of step some of the implications of the Christian faith are with the kind of cultural and ethical zeitgeist that we live in. And so we think, well, it, it's such a chasm. It's so hard to believe that people will, will, uh, will trust in Christ and, and kind of take on these, these beliefs that are so different to the world around us. Um, it feels so unpalatable, really, that no way that people will choose to follow Jesus. And the third thing, I think, is as we look around a city like London, we feel like there's no spiritual need. We feel like people don't really express any kind of existential or spiritual questions. They're not really asking, why am I here? What's the purpose of my life? Um, and if people do express these questions, you know, how can I have peace, for example, they're not going to come, we don't really think they're going to come to the church or come to Jesus to answer that question. They might find a you know, mindfulness app or something to solve their, their, their inner peace turmoil rather than look, at, look to Jesus. So those, those things together mean that we really kind of feel like evangelism is doomed. There's no point in really doing it because it's very unlikely that my friends or family or colleagues or whoever would ever really uh, turn to Jesus. And so it feels like evangelism is a bit like all cost. You know, it's, they're going to think I'm weird. There's going to be a kind of social step to take, but no reward. Um, so there's no point in really even doing it. And actually, I think Paul and his colleagues could have believed exactly the same thing, but for different reasons. You see, um, you see in verse 2, in the, in the passage we're looking at, um, for though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Behind that verse is really the narrative of Paul and his uh, kind of associates going to different towns and continually facing opposition. He's just come from Philippi where he's been, uh, ma- uh, they, they stripped him naked. They humiliated him publicly. They beat him with rods. He faced opposition from town to town. I mean, he's in Thessalonica for perhaps only a matter of weeks before there's another set of opposition um, and uh, he has to move on to the next city. So it's very easy for Paul to kind of go from town to town and see and ex- experience this opposition, this rejection, this humiliation, this, this physical beating. And to say, oh, it's not really going to happen, is it? I mean, you know, he's at the beginning of, not quite the beginning of the book of Acts, but this is before we've, we've seen the, the, the church explode across Asia and Europe. So he's not even like looking back like we are at the book of Acts and saying, wow, look, I can see that the gospel bore fruit there. He's at kind of the, the other side of that and hasn't seen that. He's on his, his first missionary journey. So it's very easy to imagine that Paul would have looked at the opposition and the rejection that he's experiencing and said, you know what, should we just settle down here? Should we just, should we just um, you know, look after the church here? Let's not go to the next city and keep on going and proclaim the gospel. Or maybe even, let's not even worry about this. I, I, you know, I had a good business making tents before this. I'll just go back to making my tents. This, this just feels too difficult. Um, it's not going to happen. But that's precisely the opposite of the approach that Paul takes. Paul keeps on persevering. He keeps on going with evangelism in the face of the opposition that he's encountering. He doesn't believe that it's doomed. Why is that? Why is Paul so different to us? I think we see the answer to that in verse 2, where he says, For though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God 
The answer is, it's not that Paul believes in himself more than we do. It's not that Paul believes in his methods, so to speak, or believes that somehow he's come to this new open place. It's that Paul, despite the suffering that he's experienced, despite the opposition, he has a boldness in God that God's word will go out, that God will accomplish his purposes. Despite the setbacks, the opposition, the humiliation he's received, he has confidence in God to continue to declare the gospel. Um, Yeah, and I guess my first question then is, what does this holy boldness, what does this confidence that Paul exhibits look like? And I think uh, one of the best places to go in the New Testament is uh, Acts chapter 4. And uh, Acts chapter 4, I'm going to read it out to you. Don't feel free not to turn to it. But but basically the context here in the passage I'm about to read is uh, Peter and John, uh, two of Jesus' disciples, um, have just been told by the ruling council of Jerusalem not to speak about Jesus and not to speak about him, not to share his gospel. And, uh, and then this prayer that we're about to hear is their kind of response to that, response to the kind of similar to the opposition that Paul's experiencing in this passage. When they were released, they went to their friends, at, so chapter 4, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, And the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered against the Lord and against his anointed. And it carries on, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So similar to Paul, they're exhibiting exactly that same resolute commitment to keep preaching the gospel and, and we see the answer to their, see the source of their boldness in this prayer. So right at the beginning of the prayer, they're so conscious, they have a resolute conviction in God's power and his authority. And they say, sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth, who, um, and, uh, who made it the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then they talk about how despite um, kind of the opposition, why... Uh, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? That ultimately, God's purposes, both in the psalm that they're quoting with David and with Jesus um, going to the cross, um, although the opposition that people opposed God, actually God was ultimately victorious. That Jesus went to the cross and put the powers and principalities to shame. That actually God's purposes can't be thwarted. So that conviction, uh, their conviction of who they're serving, that ultimately got their, their conviction that God will keep on speaking um, his word through them. He will accomplish his purposes through them. That enables them to pray, to ask God, to grant your servants to continue to speak. Ultimately, these guys, and I think Paul, know that the Lord is with them, know that he's working through them. And it's almost like they're seeing things with the eyes of faith. They're saying, even though there are setbacks, actually God's promises are stronger. God's power is stronger. This is God's work, and he won't be thwarted. I think this is what sustains Paul and his colleagues, and this is what sustains uh, these disciples in the face of this uncertainty, this opposition, uh, even the rejection, and later on, even the betrayal of, of Christians, if you think Paul sometimes faces opposition from Christians. And I think this conviction, this, this conviction in God's power and his, in the fact that he will accomplish his purposes through them, that he will get his gospel going out, is vindicated 
Their expectation that, um, for God's power is proven, as we see in the book of Acts, the church explodes across Asia and across Europe. Their, their, their faith is proved correct by what we see, not least what we see in Thessalonica. In a matter of weeks, the church is birthed in this place, and we see the believer, a new community of believers um, worshipping Jesus. So I guess as we look at the Thessalonican, Thessalonian example, um, I think I want to ask the question, if, we, if, we, if they believed, if Paul believed for that city, believed that there would be people who come to faith in that prominent city, in that region, why would we not believe it for this city? And this is actually, this is the source of our conviction too, that we believe and trust in a sovereign God who will accomplish his purposes. And indeed, we offer ourselves up to be used by him, for him to work his purposes in this city. It's that same resolute conviction that drives us on in evangelism. In, in the face of sometimes, you know, hard ground, sometimes opposition, sometimes rejection, sometimes people saying, you're, you're idiots. Actually, that's that same conviction that say, no, God will work his purposes in this city and he will lead people to faith through us. And actually, the gospel is continuing to go out in this congregation today. I think about two examples. One is um, Estera. Uh, she uh, went to a Christian festival not, not that long ago, and um, she afterwards um, was kind of renewed with a sense of conviction uh, that God could use her. And uh, she just felt from God, uh, it's kind of that, that this woman that she saw, she felt God was speaking to her and show, showing her a picture that this woman had some kind of issue with her housing situation. She wasn't really sure. She'd never really done this before. So she went up to the lady and basically said, can I pray for you? I feel like maybe there's something around your housing situation. And the lady was like, how do you know that? And she said, well, I just think kind of basically in kind of fumbling terms that like God, has, God has shown me this. And, um, and, and then the lady kind of broke down in tears. And she was going through a really horrible, difficult housing situation, and God had revealed that to Estera. And so she prayed for her. And I kind of ask exactly the kind of conviction, the boldness that I think we're talking about here. Or think about um, Joyce, who came, uh, came to Grace London a little while ago. God's really worked in her life. And, um, and then she went back. Her grandma was sick. And she went back to Hong Kong to see her grandma. Her grandma's been a Buddhist for 93 years, um, all her life. And, uh, and obviously Joyce was troubled by this, troubled that... that um, you know, her grandma was facing eternity away from God. And so, um, so she, she went to the chaplain of the hospital that her grandma was in and said, look, can we, go and, can we share with her in some way? So the chaplain went and shared the gospel with, it, with Joyce's grandma. And obviously, Joyce's grandma had seen uh, what it looks like in Joyce's life as well. Um, and, and actually, Joyce's grandma chose to put her faith in Christ and to pray with that, um, with that lady. 93 years, she's been, she's been a, a Buddhist, and she chose to put her faith in Christ and to follow Jesus. Um, praise God. And, um, and, you know, just that little, little dose of boldness um, in our sister Joyce um, to, to take that step to go and talk to the chaplain and then, and then to go and share the gospel with her. That's brilliant. And, and she was at church this morning, wasn't she, with, with, with Joyce's family who don't follow Jesus. So that's really exciting. So we're going <laughs> to see this next step. We'll see how the story continues. Um, but God is at work. The gospel is going out in this city. He's using us. And this is precisely the grounds by which we can stand. We say, actually, evangelism is not doomed. Evangelism is not uh, kind of, uh, we're gonna, the church is going to crumble. Actually, God is at work in this city as he was working in Thessalonica. And I think it's this conviction that will give you the confidence to step out in faith, to tell your colleagues that you're a Christian if you haven't done that, because you think, well, okay, maybe they're going to think I'm a bit weird, but actually this might be the very beginning of their journey towards Jesus. Or this might be the reason that actually you start to pray for your classmates. Uh, you know, some of you have just started courses. You might start to pray for your classmates because you say, actually, I believe and trust in a powerful God who loves these people and who can work through me to reach them. So you start to pray with actually a kind of conviction and a belief that God can move in your classmates. So actually, we can say evangelism is not doomed to failure. Actually, it's predestined to success. 
Uh, myth number two, then. Um, evangelism is immoral. Now, I'm not saying... In fact, you might be sitting here and as a non-Christian, uh, sorry, as, as not a, somebody who's not a Christian, and be sitting here saying, this is really kind of unusual. Like, why are they talking about trying to help people like me to, to kind of uh, encounter Jesus? Why, why do they put so much emphasis on this? And actually, you might think it's even a bit kind of weird or even a bit wrong that they would kind of put so much effort uh, to try and help um, me encounter Jesus. Um, I think that, that belief is, is kind of subtly there in our culture. Just think about the... Um, some people would say evangelism is immoral because you're kind of imposing your beliefs on other people. It's a little bit arrogant to think that you've got the truth and that you, in this pluralistic society where we've all got some measure of, you know, as the culture would say, we've all got some kind of understanding of, of our truth, truth for us. Actually, the idea that we would take our truth and say that's actually true, if that makes any sense, um, <laughs> that, that is, is ever so slightly offensive. Um, or, or actually, maybe I would think, think of it like this. If someone was to say to you, are you trying to convert me? Actually, behind that, behind that question that you may have been asked, actually, there's a subtle suggestion that it's wrong. I think it's wrong. They would be suggesting it's wrong in a couple of ways. One is sometimes people would say it's almost a bit deceptive. You know, almost like they might say, are you, are you trying to kind of manipulating me to faith? Are you trying to um, kind of change my worldview in an underhand way? I think that's probably because people are being used to being sold to and marketed to in, in often manipulative ways. Just think about the, uh, the fat-free yogurt that I was eating this week that, had, that didn't tell you it had 27 grams of sugar in it. Or um, just think about that salesperson who's really nice to you, um, but only because then you like them, so you can't say no when they ask you to buy whatever they're selling. So we live in a world where people are using manipulation uh, to try and sell to you and market to you. I, up until a couple of weeks ago, I was leading a sales and marketing team, so I can, I can attest to this. Not that necessarily that was the team I was running, but that, we, um, that that was the pressure in the environment that, that we always want to try. People, I'll leave that. Um, <laughs> um, so I think people kind of project that then onto our evangelism. They say, that you're, that's what you're kind of doing. You're kind of manipulating me um, into trying to follow Jesus. Or even that it's a bit self-serving. You know, people will look at evangelism and say, actually, isn't this really you just kind of trying to build your religious club? Isn't this really just trying to, you just kind of, kind of trying to get converts and kind of add to your list? It's not really for me. It's not really for other. It's not self, uh, it's not interested in their welfare. It's just, it's really for, for our benefit. I'm not saying if you're a Christian here that you will feel this necessarily about evangelism, but I think that subtle perception in our culture then undermines our um, enthusiasm for evangelism. It, it kind of... Um, Dents our, our kind of confidence in it. It kind of we feel I don't really want to be arrogant. I don't want to be deceptive. I you know we kind of end up believing a little bit of what people are saying, and even to the point where it doesn't feel. Even if you don't think it's immoral, I don't think it feels very inspiring or noble to us. It feels like almost something we should do, but it's it's not really like the scent, the thing that really excites us about following Jesus. And actually, I think Paul gets tarred with the same brush. Um, that he gets the same charge, actually, that he's both deceptive and um, self-seeking in his, in, his, um, in his mission to the Thessalonians. So um, in verse 3, in um, chapter 2, he says um, he has to basically argue that he doesn't have impure motives or an attempt, he's attempting to deceive them. He says, for my appeal does not spring from error or impurity or an attempt to deceive. He's basically saying, I wasn't trying to lie to you. I wasn't doing this um, in the wrong way or for the wrong reasons. Um, he goes on, actually, to say, neither did he try to manipulate them with flattery. He says, for we never came with words of flattery, in verse 5. 
So he's saying, I didn't try to manipulate you by being nice to you. You know, you think about all those salespeople. I had someone come to the door um, the week before last from a cancer charity. And the first thing they said to me was, oh, are you 21? Because, you know, we, we, you, you look too young to be uh, over 21. And we ha- you have to be 21 to kind of, for me to legally be allowed to, to speak to you. So they were kind of subtly trying to flatter me as a way to then... Um, get me to uh, donate to their, their wonderful cause. Um, but the point is that flattery is sometimes kind of associated with kind of manipulating people or trying to get them to do certain things. Um, so he's saying, look, I didn't come to you trying to manipulate you. And neither did he come to them for selfish reasons. In verse 5, he's, he carries on, nor with a pretext for greed. So he's saying, I didn't come to you to try and make money from you. Maybe he's getting criticism somehow that he came here for selfish reasons. And he's saying, I didn't... Um, and actually, in verse 9, he goes on to say, actually, I worked night and day. I worked, I did my own work. I supported myself so that I wouldn't be a burden to you. So he's re- directly refuting this charge that he came there for kind of selfish or greedy reasons. Um, so I think Paul is, is answering the claims, the same, the same accusations that we might face with our evangelism, that he's kind of coming there deceptively or for selfish reasons. But why should we believe him? How can we be sure his ministry, or indeed, our ministry, our evangelism, is, um, is not immoral. It's actually a good thing. I think we can see the answer to that in the next verses. The answer is love. Love is at the center of Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians. Love is at the center, actually, even of his message, which we'll come on to. And love is what drives us to take the gospel, the good news, into this city And far from being immoral, actually, evangelism is the most loving thing we can do. So first of all, love is at the center of Paul's ministry uh, to the Thessalonians. Uh, Paul describes himself in verse 7 as a nursing mother. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. The picture Paul chooses to describe his ministry to the Thessalonians is a picture of total devotion and sacrifice motivated by love. We can ask some of the uh, nursing mothers or mothers of of, um, young children um, in the congregation, and they'll tell you that any mother of a newborn baby is, for the first early months and years and perhaps longer, is, is a life of total sacrifice. You know, you're, you lose your first few months, you're losing any kind of sense of sleep patterns. Um, you are you know, sacrificing your time, your sleep, your, your control of your life, your personal space. You're, you're, you're literally giving yourself and you're feeding your um, newborn baby. And actually, if you speak to any of them, so you see that kind of total sacrifice and devotion. But if you speak to any of them, I've got two sister-in-laws um, who are both relatively newborn mothers of newborn babies. And, and, and they're both so happy with this. They're not like resenting the lack of sleep. They're not resenting the the kind of total loss of control of their life. Why? Because they love their children. They're delighted to to sacrifice themselves for their their newborn babies. And this is the picture Paul is giving us of his ministry. He's not merely fulfilling a duty. He's not like a kind of priest who's going through the motions and kind of ringing the bell and doing the things and, and just going through the liturgy. He actually cares for the people he's ministering to. He's not like a salesperson who's really friendly on the phone to you, but as soon as they put the phone, they start saying, oh, did you get a load of this one I was just talking to? He actually loves the people he's ministering to. Um, and we can see that deep care and compassion he has for the Thessalonians. In verse 8, he says he was affectionately desirous of them. He loves them. So much so that not, not only does he share the gospel with them, which is important, and we'll come back to that, but he actually gives himself to them. 
It says, we were, already to, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So this is not a man looking to deceive or, or just go there, get a quick buck, and is coming, going there on the take to get something from them. This is a man who's giving himself, he's giving his whole life, he's pouring his energy, his time, even his body. You know, he's willing to be beaten for this in Philippi, in the, the, the town we've just been to. Um, all of that so that the people he's speaking to might have eternal life and be reconciled to the God who knows them and loves them. So this is not actually just even his method that, he, that is um, loving, that is punctuated by the sacrificial love, but it's also the message he's bringing to the Thessalonians. At the center of the gospel is sacrificial love. The essence of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is even though we've rejected him, we've lived lives against him, we've ignored him, um, we've built our lives around other things, even though we're deserving of judgment and to spend eternity away from him, we worship a holy God who not only made us but loves us and was willing to humble himself um, and ultimately humble himself by coming down and dying on the cross, willing to sacrifice his life, Jesus, willing to sacrifice his life for us so that we might be connected to God. We might be forgiven and enter into a relationship with God. So the center of that, that, that Christian story, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is the loving sacrifice of Jesus, willing to die for us on the cross. Partly out of obedience to the Father, and partly driven by a sincere love and willingness to sacrifice his life for us. After all, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So Paul's method and his message is one of sacrificial love. And so I think that should totally um, reorientate our understanding of evangelism, that it actually it comes out of a love for this city. It's driven by compassion for this city. And actually, it's the most loving thing we can do for the people around us. Just think back to Matthew, um, Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus looked out upon the crowd and said he had compassion on them because they were like sheep, uh, they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So too, we look out onto our city and actually see the greatest problem of the people around us is that they were made for God. They were made to worship him and enjoy him for the rest of eternity. And actually, their lives at the moment deny that. Their lives at the moment are totally out of sync with their central purpose, to enjoy God and worship him forever. And so we see that condition and we have compassion on them. We have compassion on them. They're harassed and helpless without, the God, uh, without knowing the God who made them to know, the, know them. And so we make it our goal to lovingly introduce them to their saviour, Jesus. So if, if their lack of relationship with God is their central problem, if it's the biggest problem of the people in this city, then the most loving thing we can do is take Jesus to them introduce them, connect them with the person who loves them and made them. So, you know, I think of a, a bit of an analogy here. You might have heard this one before. But if you imagine for a moment all the people in the world were in a, in a darkened room and, and, they, and, they, and they were there for a while and they couldn't find any food and people are, you know, getting hungry and there's a pitch black room and everyone's kind of searching, looking for food. And then, and then, and then you find some bread. What would you do if you found that bread? Now, maybe some of you might say I'd keep it for myself. Um, but actually, the most loving thing you would do when you found that bread would be to shout at the top of your voice and say, I found the bread. The bread's here. And that's exactly what we're doing in evangelism. 
We've, we're just hungry men, hungry men and women who found the bread and are saying, look, guys, the bread's over here. And actually, it's the most, in that context, when you understand that, then you see that evangelism is the most loving thing we can do for this city. So rather than being immoral, actually, evangelism is the best thing we can do for this city. So do you have this compassion for, the, for this city? Do you have this compassion for your city? I wouldn't expect you to, in a way, because I think we live in a city where it's not normal to, to see, you know, we're, we're all around each other, but we're not actually even seeing each other, let alone to love your neighbor. So I want to encourage you this morning to look again at this city and to see their spiritual needs. Encourage you to ask Jesus for his compassion as you experience his compassion for you, as you experience his unconditional love as we take communion later and we experience that and remind ourselves afresh of his sacrifice for us. I want you to turn that compassion not just onto yourself, but consider that compassion, that that love for our city. Ask him for this sacrificial love. This is the same love that sees a city that is uh, broken and hurting, but, but let's be honest, sometimes we might get a sense doesn't kind of embrace, embrace uh, Christians, maybe even kind of rejects Christians. That might be the, the perception we have. I'm not saying that's necessarily true. But actually, instead of running away and kind of building our own little spiritual club, actually runs directly back to the city. It says, we're going to be here, we're going to love you, and we're going to bring the gospel to you. That's the best thing we think is for the city. This is the same love that, that took missionaries around the world to places they've never been, who let, led them to leave their families, to sacrifice everything they had to take the gospel to a land they'd never even seen. It's that same love. It may, it's that same love that may say, okay, my colleagues might think I'm a bit weird if I start to tell them my story or might start to be a bit more distinctive about my faith in my workplace. But actually, I'll tell them my story. I'll, I'll invite them to Salt Live because I love them and because I see their spiritual need. So we can say evangelism is not immoral. Um, It's actually driven by love, and it's the best thing we can do. Finally, myth number three. Evangelism isn't necessary. I don't need to evangelize because I can show Jesus with my actions. Let's say you're convinced of the need. Say you say, look, I can see the need in this city. And say you're convinced that, actually, yeah, God God can work through us. As, As the people of God, we believe he can work through us. I think even then, many of us find ourselves in a place where we're not really uh, kind of doing evangelism. I think the reason for that is because often we kind of boil down um, mission to really showing people Jesus, which, which is, by the way, a really fantastic thing, and distinctively living. And, and, we, and we talk, actually, that's our hope for this church, even that as people see this countercultural community of God's love at work, they would say, wow, that's beautiful. So we, we do believe in that, but that we've almost boiled evangelism just to that. We just think, that well, I don't need to tell people about Jesus. I can show people with my life. I'm not an evangelist. I'm more someone who shows people what Jesus um, is about with my actions. Um, I think there's a few reasons for this. One is because we live in a culture that stopped believing in truth, in absolute truth. And so, we th- and so people around us will say, look, I'm not really interested in what, what your ideas are. I just want to see, how does it make a difference to your life? So we live in a culture that kind of downplays the importance of ideas and words because we think, actually, there's no, there's, most people have kind of said there isn't really an absolute truth. So we kind of borrow from that. Or, or secondly, we, we live in a culture that for some time says it's not appropriate to share your faith. By sharing your faith, by telling people about your religious beliefs, actually what you're doing is encouraging conflict, you're kind of dividing our society, you're, 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 creating, you're uh, harming the kind of harmony, so to speak, in, this, in the society. And so we kind of take that narrative and say, okay, well, I can't, I can't share my faith, but I can at least show people uh, Jesus in my life with my actions. And finally, I think probably... The third reason is, I think it's just less scary. 
I think if we're faced with the choice of modeling or telling people about Jesus, I think we often choose uh, modeling because talking involves maybe awkward questions or uh, disagreement, or maybe people might think it's slightly weird. Um, So I'll, I'll just choose to love them instead. And it's less likely to damage that friendship. And if anything, if you actually love people in a truly countercultural way, it'll, have the op- it'll actually mean that they love you more, if anything. And yet, I think Paul's approach is very different in this passage. See, his secret source, so to speak, his key, the key to his mission in Thessalonica, the key to what changes lives then and now is the gospel. The gospel is absolutely central to Paul's ministry. And we can see between verse 5 and chapter 1, the passage we started with, and uh, chapter 2, verse 9, it's mentioned five times. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. We've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. So the gospel is at the center of Paul's ministry. Paul clearly sees his primary mission, his role... It's about getting the gospel out, about declaring and proclaiming the good news about Jesus to the people around him. So what what do we mean by gospel? Well, gospel literally means um, the good news about Jesus, and it's information, it's truth. It's not just, um, obviously, loving people is absolutely essential, and we see that in Paul's ministry. We talked about that. But actually, it's also, evangelism is also about getting this news out to people, getting the news that God loves them and has given them a way to connect with them. So it, I guess, um, I guess I would say that I think this really reveals, or this speaks to, this, actually the central problem that people have in this city. If the central problem people have is that they're disconnected from God, they don't know him, they're heading for an eternity away from him, and that we know that Jesus died for them to make a way for them to be forgiven and united with him, what do they need? Well, the one thing they need is a knowledge, a knowledge of God, a knowledge of where they are now, and a knowledge that, it's, that it doesn't have to be like that that they can be connected with God. The one thing people need to be connected with God is a knowledge of who he is, of their position now, and, and, uh, and that that doesn't have to be the, the end, that actually that, that Jesus has come to make a way. And so it's actually precisely the gospel which is what people need most. So this is why in Romans 10, 13, it says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Great, we believe that, that's fantastic. But then it goes on and says, how then will they call on him who, um, who they have not believed? How are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So the central way for people to believe is actually that the gospel is preached. And I don't think he's just talking about preach from a pulpit or just preach from a you know, salt live evening. It's actually talking about the gospel being proclaimed by all of us in our lives. So the logic is simple. People in this city without... Um, People in the, the hope for the people in the city is that people like us, all of us, will go and announce the gospel to them. And actually, I would go even further than that and say the gospel is actually relatively unknown in this city. See, most secular Londoners, if you ask them, what does it mean to be a Christian? They'd say, well, it kind of means to be a good person, maybe. Maybe it means to be sexually prudish, to kind of live outside the norms of our society in that way. Um, but they certainly, most Londoners wouldn't say what it means to be a Christian is to be forgiven by God and to know him for eternity. Actually, there's a fundamental lack of understanding of the true Christian gospel in this city. So actually, this is even more acute in our city. Actually, if all you ever do is be nice to people and love them, but never tell them about him, if anything, that's just going to confirm that, that, that thesis to them. Being a Christian is being nice to people, because that's all they've ever seen, is Christians being nice to them. They've never heard that actually that's not the central message. The central message is they can be re- reconciled with God. 
and that actually no matter how, far, how bad you've been, no matter how far you've uh, rejected God with your life, that actually you can be reconciled, that, you could, that he loves you and he died for you so that you can be reconciled with him. So I think this, then our mission to this city must include word and deed. So, you know, if we just do words without action, it'll probably feel a little bit hollow and superficial. You know, if you tell your colleagues that God loves them and then you just go around being angry with them and aggressive and you just don't model that attitude, they'll say, I don't really believe any God that he worships. Um, and then, or if action without words. If you just, if you just uh, tell them, uh, sorry, if you just live out really a loving life but don't tell them, then they'll just think you're a really good person and Christians are really good people. So actually, the, the true ministry and mission in the city involves word and deed. This means that you might be countercultural at work. You might be loving to your colleagues. You might go and get everyone a Snickers bar when everyone's really stressed. But, but, but then you explain why. Actually, I'm doing this because I, I believe in an unconditionally loving God who, who loved me. And, and, and you, know, you, can, you can fill in the gaps. Or, or you might, say, might choose to forgive your friends. You know, say someone's really wronged you. You might choose to forgive them and then say, actually, I'm doing this because I believe in a God who forgave me. So you start to tell people the gospel, both in kind of what you do, and also you start to tell your story in a way that points to the gospel. Tell your story. Tell, actually, you know, at the very center of my life is a knowledge that now I'm forgiven and loved by God, and that's changed me. It means I don't need to pursue success anymore. I don't need to live for other people's approval because I know that I'm already loved by God. So I'll tell you, my story, I'll tell you a little bit of my story, and I'm telling you the gospel at the same time. So we can see then that evangelism is actually precisely the most necessary thing for our city. So we can say evangelism is far from doomed from failure. Actually, we have a confidence in our sovereign uh, Lord to use us in this city, to use us to reach the city with the gospel. The evangelism is not immoral. It's actually the most loving thing we can do. And far from excluding words, actually the gospel is the most important part of that. The uh, most important part of our ministry to this city is proclaiming the good news about Jesus and telling people um, how they can connect with God. So we see the need in this city. We can see that many are disconnected and cut off from God. And we've been entrusted, like Paul, with this gospel, with this good news, the answer to their biggest problem. And we can see, actually, that we've been given this precious calling and privilege, then, to help them rec be reconciled with God. So I want to urge you this morning to believe again in evangelism, to believe again that this is possible, to believe again that this is actually the best thing we can do, and actually, as we, as we come over the next few months, we, you know, we, we've done a few things already, and we're going to keep giving you opportunities as a church to be involved in the Great Commission. Not just in here, obviously, as a church, but also in your own life, with the people around you. It's not, it doesn't all just rely on, on when we're gathered together. It's also the people scattered. God is using us. So as we do that, as we, as we kind of approach these opportunities, we have a choice. Do we, do we say, yeah, actually, I'm going to trust you, God? I'm going to believe that you can use me. I'm going to believe that you are sovereign Lord and you will accomplish your purposes. And actually, I'm going to take this, this precious good news to this city. Or are we going to say, actually, that's not for me? I want to invite you again to believe and trust the Lord that he will use us as a, as a people. Join, you, join me in believing for this city and to trust God that he will, he, will, he will accomplish his purposes through us, through us taking the gospel out into this city. Um, why don't the band come up? I'm going to pray for us now, and I'm going to pray just a kind of um, choice to, to trust him again. I'm going to pray to, to, um, to believe again his promises. So as I do that, um, if, you, if, you, if this is you, if you say, yeah, this is for me, I want to believe again and to trust him for, his, for him to use us, then I would just invite you to join with me in your, kind of, in your, in your own heart as I pray this. Um, and then I'll go on. Lord Jesus, we just thank you that you're so good to us. We thank you that you, uh, that you love us, 
that this gospel, this news of your sacrificial love has come to us, that we've been united with you and we'll be united with you for eternity. We want to trust you again that you will use us in this city, that you will use us, that your gospel will go out and that we'll bear fruit in this city. So we want to ask you that you would use us. We want to repent of not believing you not believing in this, in this uh, precious privilege that you've given us as your body, as your people. We just say we want to trust you again, Lord. Trust you that you are good, that you are sovereign, that your purposes will be accomplished. We just step into that, Lord. We just say we repent of not doing this. We just ask that you'd give us opportunities, even this week, as we go out into the world, that you would give us opportunity to tell people about your precious good news and that we would help people to be connected with you again. Amen.